Welcome to Monster Dear Monster, a multimedia monster podcast. I'm your host, Cameron, and joining me tonight are Matt. Matt, how are you doing? I am grand, thank you. I have been prepping for this recording with what professional podcasters do, and that's gravel in their garden. <laughs> so I'm a bit, yeah, I'm Fair a bit enough. achy, but it's it's what adults do, supposedly. This is, I've got to that time in life now where I, mm. I can't play video games all day. I've got to gravel gardens and do such interesting things like that. Mm, mm, yes. And also joining us tonight is the inestimable Dave. Dave, how are you doing, mate? Um, I'm doing good. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> graveling a garden, although we were trimming some uh, rose bushes yesterday. So oh. there's gardening being done. Home improvement Absolutely. all around. That's what we believe oh, yeah. in, Monster Dear Monster. Yeah, yeah. Home <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, before we continue on with the main body of our episode, this week we'll be discussing Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, Matt. We have a new segment for you to yeah, introduce. Would you care absolutely. to? Absolutely. Uh, this week's admins can be a bit more interesting than the usual iTunes. Um, we've decided, due to popular demand from myself, uh, <laughs> that we would introduce a new segment, segment um, which is going to be Monster Dear Monster Presents Yokai of the Week. Um, so, yeah, every week now we're going to um, roll some dice. And talk about a random yokai to educate you, dear listener, in the you know in the yokai realm. So on with that, roll them, Dave. <laughs> what does it say? It's a sixteen, Dave. Yes, sixteen. Yes, that's what I I planned. One, six. Sixteen. <laughs> Dave, what's our yokai of the week? <laughs> if I counted correctly, it's the Ame Furikozo. Ah, yes. Uh, a li- is that, is that what? <laughs> yeah, professional here. Um, a little That's boy correct. spirit plays in the rain. Yep. Who yeah. plays in the rain? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. D- Dave, tell us about him. All right. Um, so this is what's well, a type of Japanese yokai. They're all. They're all <laughs> <Japanese yokai. laughs> Get your facts. Is there really any other? Um, it's depicted. Yes. Yeah. We're. Uh, that's how good we are. We're very factual. Um, so <laughs> this is depicted in uh, Seiken Toriyama's collection of the. Um, I guess it's a different one. Uh, Konjaku Gazu Zoku Hyaki. And they can be seen in the Kibyoshi, that is, um, <laughs> among the other publications of the same area. So it must be uh, like a, a record. And so, yeah, this guy uh, in the Konjaku Gazu Zoku Hyaki, uh, it wears a Japanese umbrella with its central pole missing. Uh, so it's like a little hat. Um, and it's depicted possessing a paper lantern. Hmm. Um, in the text uh, of the uh, the guide, it says, 
Speaking of the rain god Ushi, there is the Amefuri Kozo, who works as its Jido, um, stating that they are the Jido, the children employed by the nobility of the Chinese rain god Ushi. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And look up that Kibyoshi for a second. Mm, mm. Go ahead. Yes. Well, well I quite like. <laughs> okay, it's a Japanese. <laughs> okay, picture. there we go. Ah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, I quite, I go. quite like a little Amefuru Kozo. Uh, he's like you, like you said, uh, wearing a umbrella without a central pole as sort of just a giant hat to keep the rain off. Uh, he seems quite a friendly yeah. young fellow. It's, it's... He's got a very big head in one of yeah. these drawings. <laughs> Yeah, and a little mustache. Yeah, <laughs> big eyebrows as well. It's um, yeah, it's it's nice to actually talk about a nice yokai, which shows you know shows they're oh, not all evil. So good. I mean, we we do talk about the evil ones <laughs> generally on this show, but yeah, he's quite yeah, he's quite yeah, a, yeah. exactly. You you know he's a sort of yokai you'd pat on the head and go hey there Skip how's it hanging and he's like well I'm not getting wet <laughs> <laughs> yeah excellent. Oh. Yeah. Oh, it looks like there's um, a note for the uh, modern depiction of these guys. Um, do you mm. want to look at that? Yeah, note? according to yokai literature published off the Showa and Hensai era, eras. Uh, uh, Hensai. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Am I pronoun- Yeah. Yeah, my pronunciation's rubbish. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I say that every time. Uh, right. There are the theories that if you steal the umbrella from him and wear it, one would not be able to take it off. And the theory that they that they make it shower and delight seeing people getting troubled. Oh, okay. So he's... So he's a, he's yeah, a mischievous boy. One, that one? <laughs> no, that's only because you stole his hat. Okay. True. <laughs> Otherwise they're okay. Yeah. Well, that's fair enough, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's that's the modern mm. version. Oh, that's quite yeah. nice to I, I feel educated. After this. Mm. Listen, I'm sure the listeners do too. I bet they can't wait for next week's one. Uh. Oh, I'm sure. Uh. Oh, there's a little part about the lantern. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, yeah, sorry. Rather yeah, it's um, the next paragraph. Um, so there, uh, it looks like it's performing at a, a fox's wedding. Um, so it's saying, uh, please make the rainfall. And when the when the um, Amefurikozo waved a paper lantern that it had, um, it made the rain suddenly fall, uh, and then they could hold the wedding. So there's the purpose for the little lantern. Oh, okay. So it's it's his uh, little rain summoner. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. And he has his little hat, so he doesn't get wet. Yeah, so he's fine. <laughs> 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 so he's fine. Yeah, he wears his little hat, and he's like, "I'm gonna make it rain. Don't steal my hat." <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been. Yokai dun, of the dun, week. Dun. <laughs> uh, moving on, this week we're going to be covering, as I mentioned earlier, Pan's yeah. Labyrinth. This is a 2006 uh, released fantasy drama film. It runs for one hour, 59 minutes, and was produced and directed by Guillermo del Toro, our yeah. favorite boy. Uh, actually, just a slight aside. Did any of you see the um the Onion article on Twitter about him in the last week or two? 
where some the onion. Uh, yes, right? where he's going to the wedding with his monster bride. Yeah, he sh- he showed up in an award show with monster bride, and everyone's immediate reaction was, "I didn't notice this was an onion article. I just accepted it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course he has a monster bride. <laughs> uh, he's great. Good he's old great. Del Toro. Um, but yeah, good old Del Toro. So. Pan's Labyrinth is a tale of 1944 Spain during its civil war, uh, and a young girl, Ophelia, and her ailing mother arrive at the post of her mother's new husband, who's an army officer trying to quell a civilian uprising. That's sort of the side, to the side of, Ophelia finds a fawn, uh, Pan in the English version, although I believe in the actual Spanish dialogue, because the movie's in Spanish, you'll need your English subtitles if you don't speak, uh, the fawn in the Spanish dialogue is only ever referred to as the fawn. It's never actually named as Pan. Uh, yeah, they just pick Pan for the English release. Yeah. That seemed more relatable, I guess. It's recognizable. You know what a fawn yeah. is. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. <laughs> do they not... Lincoln, it's the Greek god. Do they not remember Mr. Tumnus? <laughs> Who also yeah. has an umbrella. And he's definitely yeah. a fawn mm. as well. Here we go. Cause... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess we'll just go with uh, general thoughts. Matt, what did you think of Pan's Labyrinth? Um, it's one, that, one of those films that I I didn't watch when it first came out because I know it's always had a great reputation and it's one of those that I've only watched probably in recent years um, as well as obviously rewatching it for this show as well um it's, it's one of those I, I i watched it with my my mum initially because I, it was one of those where you know when you, you're browsing uh, like on netflix and mm. such like and you're trying to uh find something to watch and it was one of those where i was like oh you know mum let's, let's stick this one because my mum's pretty good for watching horror films and and blokish films yeah. whereas my wife is terrible for that sort of stuff i can't watch anything like that with <laughs> her so i always rely on my mum um for that sort of thing and and I said to her, let's, let's watch Pan's Labyrinth. It's got a really good reputation. And she's like, oh, no, it's a kid's film. And I'm like, no, I don't think it is a kid's film. Not really. And she goes, and, you know, it's one of those where I managed to convince her. And, you know, we both really loved it as well. And I think, you know, overall, I think it's a fantastic movie. Um, it's very layered. There's lots of uh, little things that Del Toro's put in this that, you know, you could, once you've, especially when you've seen it a couple of times, you can connect the dots slightly. Um my only sort of mixed feeling on the film in general, I just personally wish there was more of the fantasy side in it, really. I think that I, I understand, obviously, the the Spanish Civil War part of it is obviously prominent and, you know, obviously has its own meaning as well. But I personally just, just wish there was a little bit more of the fantasy side, you know, like, for example, exploring the underworld that, that she's that uh, Alifia is trying to you know get to basically and you know the background of that is you know so it could I, w- I wish it was personally a bit more fleshed out but I don't think it takes anything off the film uh, I still yeah I still think it's a fantastic movie um, how about you Dave mm, yeah I would echo those those thoughts uh, I watched this when it first came out and I don't think I've seen it probably <laughs> since then uh, maybe bits and pieces I totally forgot it was like as dark and violent as it ended up being. Um, yeah, the, the the politics of it uh, aren't really the background. They're like the center stage and all the fantastic stuff is sort of in the background. Um, it, it's 
it's a, a um, Ophelia. It's, it's her story, but she's sort of a footnote in you know the the after effect of this civil war that had gone on. So it's it's I don't know. It's tough. It's um, it's on the ground level. It's not like a national picture of what was happening. It's it's the immediate effects um, on on the general populace, and that that gritty realism is like so offset i think by the the fantastical nature um of her adventures that she she finds herself on yeah yeah no. so yeah that's <laughs> my, my thoughts <laughs> yeah no I, again i uh pretty much agree i do really love uh love this movie i didn't watch it when it first came out i was fairly young then and uh as you mentioned dave it's actually quite a violent <laughs> film <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, but, uh, I got into a habit when I was in uni of, uh, I would go to a JB Hi-Fi's, which is like an electronic store. They always had a bargain bin filled with Blu-rays and DVDs. So I'd go there, you know, once a month or so and pick up a couple of good movies to watch. And I picked up Pan's Labyrinth and I would honestly say that's probably the best film I ever picked up <laughs> doing that. Uh, I, like, I just really love this film. It's super interesting, uh the politics side of thing and that sort of that story of um this is what's going on you know there's the spanish army is suppressing the civilian population stuff that's interesting to watch as well and watch everything going on with that and then you have these beautifully shot like actually incredibly well done practical and special effects for these sort of more fantastical scenes uh and some really really interesting stuff as well which will obviously be the focus of today's uh podcast um and it was the first time i'd watched a film that was entirely in a foreign language so it was really interesting uh to see that i don't know uh, i i wouldn't call it an unconscious bias but i'd always thought of films done not in english were probably just never going to be for me and it's like this proved me dead wrong uh i didn't have i didn't have to understand the exact words i had subtitles and the acting is really great throughout the film so i was going to say on i was going to say on a side note that personally for me i quite like watching foreign movies with subtitles because it it engages me more because you have unless you know because Mm. i don't speak any of the the languages i i'm more focused on the text i'm you know it just it just envelops me more really i get i i you know because it's so easy when you're you know you're it's in a the dialect that you're used to you you can sometimes switch off you know again i suppose it depends on how interesting the movie is but i think in a subtitle movie you just yeah you just you can't switch off because if you do you're going to miss something and it's not going to make any sense so no i and it's and it's got to the point now which sounds a bit weird but even on english-speaking movies i do quite often put subtitles on just so i don't you know especially for the especially Mm. for this podcast as well just so i don't miss anything really oh yeah yeah it's very easy to miss those little bits yeah. of dialogue, especially if it's in English and you stop paying attention for yeah. a minute. <laughs> and uh, I've got I've got a yeah. wife that likes interrupting me <laughs> when I'm watching these sort of ah. movies. <laughs> Bless her heart. I mean, that'll do it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess uh, um, a neat little footnote is uh, Guillermo del Toro hand wrote the subtitles for this movie. He, oh, he, wow. um, he was dissatisfied with I guess the the nature of how some subtitles are put into there, and he wanted to make sure that 
the meaning of everything since he knew it was going to be more of an international film um that the mm -hmm. subtitles were uh, on par yeah yeah very English. accurate yeah as opposed to a more literal translation i guess trying to get what he wanted across yeah 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 oh that's well, really i think cool. it makes sense as well because like I said earlier, it is a very layered film. There's lots of little things that connect everything in this movie that you don't that are not very obvious straight away. Uh, so I think he he sort of had to do that really because I think a lot of the points that he's trying to make in it could have easily been uh, missed or not you know not been the focus if he, if he hadn't had a hand in that. And I I did actually read as well that he he wrote this um, sort of just in his little notebook a lot of the time and then he he almost lost it in a taxi i think he was in america yeah he was oh, either wow. in the uk or america and he yeah he, he literally left his notebook in the in the taxi and luckily the driver managed to get it back to him two days later so you know we could have not had pan's labyrinth if uh, things had gone a different way uh yeah or a, or a completely <laughs> yeah. different version. Yeah, the yeah. first draft of this film wasn't um, Ophelia. It was her mother and, I guess, maybe Ophelia or just her brother um, and the fawn. So it was the mm. mother and the, that meets the fawn and, you know, uses that to escape the horrors of the aftermath mm. of this civil well, war. I, I, I don't know mm. what you read, but I read that the one the, that I, going off the back of that idea that the, the fawn would have, I think, impregnated the mother. I believe well, that's what that you know that mm. they would have had a half human, half form <laughs> offspring out of it. Yeah, that's the yeah. like illusion for the um, the statue that's found yeah. um, at the bottom of the labyrinth, and also some of the messages. I guess well, not messages, but things that can be read into the relationship between the fawn and um, Ophelia. Mm. Mm. Right. Well, which I guess we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll yeah, get into. We'll get into. Uh, so we're, we're going to focus on the three most sort of fleshed out creatures in this film, which is uh, fairies, the fawn, and the pale man. And uh, we might as well do them in that order, uh, seeing as that's technically order of appearance, if I'm remembering yeah, correctly. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Excellent. Yeah. So uh, starting out, we have fairies uh which begins with young ophelia out exploring in the woods finds a stick insect uh which then later shows up in her room for some reason at night uh acting very strangely and gets up on the, her bed covers in front of her and uh she questions it and actually asks if it's a fairy mm. i think if yeah, she does, yeah. Cool. yeah and uh yeah and the stick insect then shape changes itself into a, a traditional fairy, you know, a small, you know, like six inch tall humanoid figure, you know, little pointy ears, no hair, big eyes, and these really cool wings are in this shot particularly. They look like they're just yeah. leaves growing out of its yeah, back. Yeah, I was going to say, I was, I was uh, say I, that actually. The, mm. Sorry to interrupt, but she, the uh, Del Toro yeah, yeah. Uh, designed the fairy, but I think it was the actual studio that later added the the leaf like wings, which I think is actually a really good touch. To mm. be fair. Yeah, no, it's it's a beautiful touch. They look great. Um, the fairies, the fairies are pretty important in this film. They act as guides for Ophelia at certain points, um, and they work for the fawn Pan. Uh, and you know, uh, despite modern day depictions tending more towards the butterfly or dragonfly wings, uh, and the sort of a more, it's just a very tiny human with wings. Uh, these ones definitely aren't human you know they've got these sort of wood colored skin these off features like i said very large eyes no hair pointed ears uh 
and yeah, uh, I do really love the designs. Uh, Dave, what do you think? Yeah, I thought they were really neat. Um, I also like the fact that the that echoes the stick insect. You know, it, it's very organic mm. uh, and woodsy at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So even their original form doesn't really look just like a regular insect. Something's you could tell something's a little bit off with it. And so um, when she does meet it at first, it um, she finds a this little um, statue by the roadside. And mm. there's a piece missing, a little stone with a, an eye um, carved on it. As, as we know, um, Mr. Del Toro likes his eyes. <laughs> so she, mm. you know, pl- places the um, statue or the, the eye piece back into the statue. And there's a hollow where the mouth is. And the, the stick um, fairy uh, climbs out of the mouth. Of this. It's inside the statue. And... At that point, she's like, "Oh, it's a fairy," and I would have said, "No, but it's a bug." But <laughs> you know, it's it's a it's a little girl, so um, using her childlike innocence, I guess she assumes it's a fairy, mm-hmm. and um, it, it does follow. It she leaves on the truck like little convoy to go to the um, the mill, and the, the stick insect flies after her and, and follows her home. Yeah, um, so the fairies in this film are technically a little different to our sort of more traditional depictions. Like uh, like we said, a lot of modern depictions have fairies with wings, but uh, in Victorian folk- folklore and artwork, we see fairies flying on ragwort stems, so, uh, you know, stems of plants or on the backs of birds. Uh, also, there's appears to be some debate over whether or not they wear shoes. Uh, some depictions having them with footwear and others always barefoot. Uh, there's also a popular belief that they were the dead Uh, this comes across in a lot of cultures Um, things like the she uh, living in burial mounds in you know in Ireland I believe is where the she would come from yeah 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 Uh, and you get you know things like it's dangerous to eat food in fairyland and Hades so that kind of link again between fairies possibly being the spirits of the dead in traditional folklore uh, but according to King James in his dissertation, Demonology, the term fairies is used to describe illusory spirits or demonic entities that prophecy, consort, and transport individuals they served. So uh, his version of fairies, I guess, give you a little prophecy about your day, uh, help you do stuff, and then carry you around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, quite a bit different to these ones, although Ophelia has sort of a pact with them. Like I said, they act as guides at certain points, but... Uh, they don't ever carry her around. <laughs> no, it would take like so many <laughs> hundred of them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so many little bugs. Um, yeah. But what's, what I think what's neat about this this, this um, incarnation of the fairy is uh, Del Toro pulled a little bit from all of these mm. uh, ideas uh, to to make this sort of very iconic and individual um, example of a fairy. Uh, you know, we don't see any of the traditional, um, it's weak to iron or mm. uh, anything like that or, or any reason to have protective measures. Yeah. Um, they're not replacing babies with their own uh, changelings. <laughs> so they're quite different. Um, definitely a, in a servant role uh, to the fawn. Yes. I think they, they also add a, you know, a good 
uh, intro for Ophelia to introducing her to the dark uh, fantasy side of this film in you know in the sense that that b- before she meets Pan you know she, this is her first introduction she's not she's not phased by well what turns out obviously initially to be a stick insect it's you know obviously she reads fairy tales you see her you know that her mother mention it she's reading them at the start of the film and it's i think it's a good intro for her to you know to, to not get phased by it um and like you said they are they are very iconic i love the the leaf, the leaf uh, wings on them um they i just i love i think the shape-shifting uh, part when they morph into the sort of main format from the sticking set is fantastic. I love where the fairy's comparing itself to the you know the the black silhouettes <laughs> on the you know on the book that she shows uh, the fairies is fantastic. And uh, you know it's the, it's the little things, the fact that you know they have no, they there's a lot of s- emphasis on the fact they don't speak. You know they well if they do they communicate to Pan, but obviously they're sort of whispering his ear. You don't actually hear them communicating to Ophelia. You know it's just through mm. you know through sight. You know sight. You know just waving their hands and such like. So it's 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 really good. I think it's a they're actually a very good representation of, of fairies because they're you know they're in a lot of media, but they're often not the focal point of a lot of movies they're you know they're always a side you know even for people that like watch uh you know see tinkerbell in, in you know in uh, in mm. uh, in such so it's 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 good to actually see del toro's take on this and like you said he he's definitely brought into a lot of the the traits that you you hear about and and sort of amalgamate them into you know his version of it and um yeah i, I think also as well the fact that they act as a guide for Ophelia is quite a, a prominent point as well because she's in a, a world both sides, both the civil war aspect and both you know the the labyrinth side of things you know where she doesn't really know what's going on. She does you know she's getting told things. She, there's a lot of chaos around her, um, and it's just that human need to have a guide. You know, especially when you know in her case a you know a young girl who's you know will be naturally scared of things and and obviously the world around her and it's it's almost that you know that thing you see in a lot of fairy tales excuse the pun but the you know the fact that that she she has that guide that she doesn't seem to have anywhere else yeah i mean she's been displaced she's not even in her regular home they're they're they've been driven out they're in a mill yeah <laughs> it's like a little farm so it's not what you know, like the city that she's used to, or the or the town that they were in. Um, yeah, and then the fairy itself—they get the most screen time um, out of mm. any of the uh, otherworldly uh, creatures in this. Yeah, which is weird because it's Pan's labyrinth. Yeah. You'd think the fawn would be in it more. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and they're color coded too. Yeah. Which was cool. yeah, yeah, that is nice. Each one's different color. With stars. Is it brown, green, and red? Or yellow? Or is it red? Uh, yes. Yeah. One, yeah. 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 It's yeah. red. Red and kind yeah. of autumn, autumny. Green and then autumny red. Uh, yeah. Brownish blue. Hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, these fairies are themselves servants to a greater power. Uh, in this case, the fawn or pan in the English version. Um, I'm just going to straight up say it. I adore. Pan's design <laughs> so much. This is such this is such a beautiful, beautifully done practical suit as well. There's there's a man in there walking and doing the talking. Yep. 
Um, but yeah, Pan is a fawn, uh, which, you know, traditionally would be a sort of man with some horns and then goat legs. Uh, in this case, Del Toro said he wanted something that looked like it was made out of the woods and the forest. So it's, you know, still recognizably a fawn in shape. You've got these, uh, strange, the Therianthropic style legs with the bend back knees and stuff. Uh, and you've got the humanoid torso and the face with these, this curling sort of rack of, almost ram horns rather than or big goat horns rather than uh, say domestic goat horns but he's made of wood and moss and has these strange sigils sort of bumping out of his skin where it shows um what do you guys think of this design matt yeah like you i think the design is absolutely fantastic it's so i know it's a word that gets used a lot but it's a very iconic look it is a, you know instantly recognizable mm. like like all the like the three monsters that we're going to or creatures that we're going to cover in this show they're all so prominent you know even the fairies but obviously particularly pan and obviously when we get on to especially the pale man that they're like i said they, they're mm. he's so striking he when you first see him um because he like you like you said he's he's part of the background you initially you don't even know yeah. when pan is obviously led in down the spiral staircase into the labyrinth and obviously you see the the fairy sort of talking to pan to you know wake him up you know you wouldn't even know he was there he's he he blends so perfectly into the background uh i love i love the fact that throughout the movie as as she do she does the three tasks set for her he starts getting younger and i even read as well that the Mm. the actor that you know that plays and that plays him actually they recorded yeah. him doing the final scenes first so the youthful scene mm. so then obviously as an actor when as he was you know doing more and more of the scenes and he was, he was naturally just growing tired as an actor doing it that's when he played the older uh, version of pan oh. at the start so they sort of effectively flipped yeah, it. Yeah. but yeah going back to his design it what i think it creates well for me anyway throughout the movie is it creates a big question mark over pan it's because he's got that sort of look where he's half you know, there's one half of him you think is he evil is he good you know you to me you don't because you don't know his true intention you know he's got that appearance that you think i i don't know if you're a good or a bad character you could he could he could literally go either way and i think obviously that's deliberate but even his actions throughout the movie are very you know where he's the way he talks to her you know can be seen to be a bit creepy it can be a bit you just don't know where you know what he like i said what his true intentions are i think you know it's the the, the fact that his eyes you know the the fact that they you know they're so prominent they you, you know they look soulless <laughs> you know there's they, yeah you know yeah. the horns are fantastic the the uh, design on his on his forehead you know with the the spirals on there it's you know it's yeah i just think as a it, it's one of the most prominent creatures you'll see in any movie um it's done fantastically well and it, again it, it looks like tep- typical del toro you know it, it's just that amazing <laughs> dark take on what he's often seen to be, you know, like you were talking about Mr. Tumnus at the, you know, at the start, you know, it's, you know, it, it just shows the comparison. He, you know, they look literally night and day. So no, I think he, it's a fantastic, absolutely fantastic design. Um, how about you, Dave? 
Yeah, um, because it's so iconic and so different. Uh, I mean, just imagine if this fawn was the fawn in Lion, the Witch, <laughs> oh, It would have so been a different weird. story. I, yeah. I, like, utterly. <laughs> just because they, no one would be following him around <laughs> oh, uh, <no. laughs> in the woods. <laughs> Again, it's surprising as far as the character goes that um, Ophelia is so willing um, to... Well, because it's so fantastical, and there's a you know there was a crazy war that had happened. Um, mm. e- even something so sort of disturbing is preferable to yeah. the violence um, that she I guess she's seen. Yeah, um, yeah. I think in more peaceful time, um, just venturing into the woods and having this and you know the venturing having an adventure, <laughs> <laughs> um, discovering something like this. In, in the woods, uh, in a lot of these tales, um, yeah, there is that little bit of a sinister bent to it, and because of the way the fawn carries himself, um, yeah, there it, it's like his intent is utterly unknown. And as an adult watching this, it's more um, troublesome uh, than mm. I think if maybe you know you were a child. He might just be a little bit scary, but to an adult, uh, what he's saying and what he's, you know, these quests he's wanting her to do, um, you can kind of see where it could go wrong, like, yeah, quickly. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Uh, he also has really great, just uh, from the actor's point, he moves mm-hmm. so well. Uh, he's always sort of creaking and shaking, and this goes with the sound design as well. Uh, he sounds like a tree. <laughs> you know, he sounds like an old tree, sort of just bending in the wind you know in especially yeah. in those first scenes where you see him and he's old and his legs are just constantly shaking side to side and his movements are these great twists you know there's this great effort to move this wooden body around uh it's absolutely amazing um i was watching some of the behind the scenes stuff earlier and uh the actor in this case doug jones he also plays the pale man uh he first of all doesn't natively speak spanish so he's <laughs> learned all these lines off by heart in a language he doesn't uh, quite understand himself. But then he's, you know, there's a scene where um, Pan is in the house and suddenly backs away very quickly and crouches down and blends in with the furniture. Uh, And, you know, the guys who made the suit, they're going, we don't understand how he does it. He's reciting lines in a language he doesn't know. He can't see, he can barely walk, and he's suddenly, you know, basically jogging backwards crouching down while wearing stilts because uh, to get the bent legs he's actually got a, a green cloth wrapped around his lower legs so they're not seen uh, and that he's basically up on these sort of foot high stilts uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a fan- it's a fantastic performance and a really well done job by the actor and again by the sound crew and the costuming crew and everyone uh, and it's kind of interesting because Pan or the Fawn I should say in this film is himself a servant to a greater power uh he says that he's been sent by the king of the underworld to find the lost princess moana not that one uh, <laughs> i just i just thought of that immediately when i watched it for this uh, <laughs> make that a very different film as well um <laughs> yeah uh he's been sent by the king of the underworld to retrieve sort of his long lost daughter the princess moana who uh he says ophelia clearly is and uh but before he can take her down to the underworld, but she'll 
reign forever as a beautiful queen and everything, etc., etc. Uh, she just has to do these three small tasks before the moon is full. Uh, <laughs> as you do. As you know, as you do, you know, you, you go, you go out in the middle of the night led by a stick insect and you find the creepy old man made out of wood and bone <laughs> in the woods and you accept the three tasks he tells you to do before the full moon comes. Uh, it's natural. Well, well he's playing, he's playing <laughs> into, even though she's obviously a smart girl and the fact she's, mm. she's used to reading fairy tales, he's playing into that child innocence of, you know, you sort of look. There's some sweets over here. You know, you can have all this if you do. You know, it's just playing into that sort of naivety. Yeah, yeah. Um, what I was going to actually say before you carry on is the f- when yeah. when you said that he sounds like a tree. Uh, I think Ophelia actually describes yeah. him as smelling like earth. To actually, I think I think he yeah, I think she yeah. says that to Mercedes, the uh, the maid. Um, also, mm. this I think what was quite. A, uh, an interesting line when she asks who, what his name is, and obviously, like you said, he doesn't. He's called Pan in one version of the film, and the Fawn in the other. He actually says, "You know, I, I'm, I go by many names." And he goes, "I'm the mountain, wind, and earth." You know, it's yeah, and uh, you know, mm. again, it's playing into that that you know, fawns are you know a, a seen to be a you know a wood or forest spirit of some or creature of some sort. Um, so yeah, I thought that was a really good line as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Dave. Any thoughts on acting, sound design? <laughs> uh, no, I mean Doug Jones did a, a, a stellar job as as always. He he usually mm. per- portrays a lot of the uh, otherworldly creatures in uh, Del Toro's movie movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, he, he did a great job. Um, yeah, he he learned Spanish or at least the lines to do his role, and then. Um, they ended up dubbing him over with a, um, a Spanish yeah, actor. Yeah. But um, because he was speaking the lines, um, they were able to match the the rhythm mm. like really easily. Oh yeah. yeah. Instead of just trying to dub over, you know, <laughs> speaking English or something. Mm, mm. Uh, no, he did a great job, and he's like he's terrifying. Like this isn't oh, yeah. a thing that is an endearing, um, you know. Uh, half you know man half goat it's it's a, a wood spirit uh and i think playing off that part of the mythology just really cements this as a sort of a popular culture um image yeah yeah i mean traditionally fawns are these you know sort of more playful kind uh and foolish creatures uh they're you know they're these days sort of inflated uh conflated with uh satyrs who uh back then though mm. were apparently traditionally t- depicted as these sort of stocky hairy ugly dwarves and all wood roses with horse ears and tails and stuff like that um but in 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 this form we really find sort of that more dangerous edge of the satyr and the technical physical shape of the fawn um you know Although the Romans apparently believe fawns inspired fear in men traveling in lonely, remote, or wild places. Um, I mean, this fawn would definitely do that. <laughs> <laughs> I would not like to run into him on a lonely road. No. <laughs> but I think, I think they... Uh, oh, sorry. No, I mean, he's, he's really tall, yeah, too. Yeah, he's crazy <laughs> tall. It, really, really creepy. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, a lot of the time, almost every time he's on screen, it's just with Ophelia, so you don't 
get the height. Just like, of course, he's much taller than her. She's just, you know, a kid. And then you think about it, and it's like, no, Pan's like seven to eight feet tall in this movie. <laughs> it's <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> it's just this huge thing. Um, yeah, uh, you know, uh, fawns were apparently capable of guiding humans in need, which uh, Ophelia apparently is in need of guiding at least some kind of uh, escape from the life around her, and this is her way out. And, you know, the fawns come to offer offer an interesting way out. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, also, they, they, they may... I think there's a reference as well where... Because obviously, pa, the actual god Pan in Greek mythology mm. was also sp- uh, seen to be a healer. And you obviously, that there's that point where he gives the mandrake root to Ophelia to mm. help heal her mother. So, yeah, you've got that as well. You know, Del Toro's put that little reference in there as well. Yeah, yeah. There's some quite interesting nods. Um, uh, with what Dave mentioned far earlier about uh, you as well, man, uh, about the uh, initial script saying something about uh, the fawn eventually impregnating her and uh, that referenced in the statue with the fawn, Ophelia, and the uh, baby, yep. which the fawn very pointedly refuses to talk about. <laughs> Moving uh, on. <laughs> yeah. Um, He's like, yeah, don't, don't, don't look at that yeah, statue. Yeah, d- don't think about yeah. that. Um, yeah, sort of, again, with this sort of mix of fawn and satyr traits, uh, satyrs were apparently quite quite the womanizer of a, of a creature. <laughs> um, and so that might be sort of an influence bleeding into the, um, the fawn sort of depiction there just a little bit yeah there's the, the, the fawns were too yeah um, but more with um, woodland nymphs yeah. and not actual not humans women, yeah well because I think that there's they say there's not you don't really see female fawns particularly anywhere so I think the, I remember reading that they basically reproduce with dryads and nymphs <laughs> to make up for the mm. fact there's no female fawns well, at least in the classic law, in modern law, there's yeah. more of yeah. really. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, he's given Ophelia some tasks to uh, get her immortality back and so she can go join the underworld. Um, this is sort of an interesting thing and it leads to a lot of this tension in we don't know uh, what's up exactly with the fawn. You know, there's things like Ophelia fails a task and suddenly he's this incredibly scary figure. Like, he's angry that she's not done what he's asked. Mm-hmm. Or that she's messed up and she's done something wrong while doing what she was meant to do, um, and yeah, no, that's where the the fear sort of really comes in yeah. with this. Uh, you know, the the first task is go uh, go get rid of this big frog, <laughs> <laughs> is what it boils down to. Which is uh, the frog really doesn't have any characterization to it, which which is why he didn't make the list, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I've, I do. I do like him. I, he's no. pretty. I was going to say he's got. There's. I read this interest. Talking of the frog, there's an interesting mm. um, comparison. Now it's quite out there, but when you actually hear it, it sort of makes some sort of sense. So, on the first task, obviously she's there to heal the tree, which mm. has been compared to looking like fallopian tubes. Okay, and yeah, yeah, and. There's oh wow! A, no, I just yeah, I just saw that. Yeah, I just so, understand that all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. So, what the what pe- some people sort of are leaning towards that that obviously he she goes down to heal the tree by you know get ridding the place of the of the frog which is causing you know the 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 tree to you know to be dying which makes mm. it's supposed to be made reference to her mother 
in the sense that the frog is like her baby brother inside mm. her mother. Okay. So they sort of, they, you know, that by her, you know, ridding of the frog and therefore, in, in, you know, healing the tree, that she, you know, there's the thought of ridding her mum of the baby, not not literally getting rid of her baby brother, yeah. but but trying to make her mother better, you know, that, that the brother is the one causing the pain and suffering to her mother. So she's, you know, feeling quite conflicted mm. uh, feelings on it as well. You know, so yeah, there's that yeah. sort of uh, dynamic going on as well. It's, you know, like I said, it sounds pretty out there, but when you sort of think <laughs> about it, like, because there's even that scene when she's looking in the, is it the book of crossroads? I think that's the name of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not the, bro- not the book of crosswords. That's completely different. <laughs> um, and and uh, she, she, there's that scene where I think she's in the bathroom and she, you know, she opens it up. I think it's before she does the second task, and you see again a similar image of looking like fallopian tubes, you know, in red, blood red, on you know, appearing in the, you know, on the pages in the book. And then that's when you see two seconds later, you know, her mum, her mother's bleeding you know downstairs mm. you, know, obviously, you know there's those there's those little little like i said earlier those connecting the dots there's though there's definitely a quite a prominent uh focus of that going on there as well yeah oh that's really interesting i never mm. really picked up on that before but the second you pointed it out i was like oh right <laughs> it makes sense <laughs> old del toro we'll see well, you again again yeah well all, all three of her tasks deal in like explicitly with um her mother's uh, health and the, mm, yeah. the baby yeah definitely the, the the second one and then the fact that the you know the hands are the um the mandrake yeah. root as well to um, heal her which it's the healer but also that to me represented a surrogate yeah. child yeah. because the mandrake itself looks mm, like yeah. a little baby mm, mm. That's possible, yeah. Because yeah. it's said to be a plant who wanted to be a human. Which is... Mm. So that could be that aspect of fairies yeah. and changelings. Yeah. 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 I mean, because ultimately she is taking her brother away mm. from mm. her mother. Oh, that's that's interesting. I didn't think of mm. that either. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've never thought too deeply before. Yeah, layers within layers. Yeah. Um, but this this does bring us to the second task uh you know after destroying the frog Ophelia managed to retrieve a golden key um and the fawn gives her a piece of chalk and an hourglass and says uh and the uh the book of the crossroads i should say i say okay your next task is just uh draw a door with a chalk anywhere in your room open it up and uh use the key to get something and uh, just make sure you're back before the sand and the timer runs out uh, and this is our introduction to the Pale Man, which is um, arguably even more iconic than uh, the Fawn from the yeah. film. Uh, wow. I just realized we're an audio-only format, so none of our listeners will see. Uh, I literally just put my hands up in front of my face. <laughs> <laughs> and they can't yeah. see it. No, it's oh, a double, it's, double it's Very, very deep. Uh, <laughs> I just did that instinctually every time. Every time I've talked about Pan's Labyrinth, the Pale Man, the instinctual thing for me to do to, you know, make sure people get exactly what we're talking about is I put my hands up in front of my face like that. Because a lot of people just get it. If you've seen the film, you know exactly what someone's talking about. <laughs> um, so, again, this will, this is, uh, this was Doug Jones acting the, uh, the monster. Uh, this one's really interesting. Uh, it's a yeah. great 
it's it is a great design. Um, again, going through the bonus scenes on my on my uh, copy of the movie, uh, the costume designers said uh, Del Toro wanted him to look as if he was this really obese man who suddenly lost all his weight. And so it's this sort of bone-thin, long-legged, pale creature with these flaps yep. of skin just hanging down, and this blank face with uh, two nostrils where eyes should be. Uh, he is creepy as hell. Oh, uh, just a bit. He's, yeah. he's, he's Silent Hill creepy. Oh, yeah. He'd be, he'd he, would, he would not be out of place. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, and one of the one of the better details is he's seated at this at the end of this long sort of banquet table piled high with food, and he's got a single small plate in front of him with two eyeballs, <laughs> uh, because he has no eyes with which to see on his face. But uh, as revealed when he wakes up, he actually has eye sockets in the palms of his hands, uh, and so the way he sees is he spreads his hands up in front of his face in the method I described just a little bit earlier. <laughs> Uh, and sort of waves waves himself around. Um, sounds silly, but it's honestly within the context of the film very threatening. <laughs> oh yeah, he's, he's, he's yeah. a different level, isn't he? He's oh. you know, we, after seeing you know the unsettling nature of the fawn, you can this pale you know this creature is like I said is a whole new level. This is re, you know this is bordering on horror, whereas the the fawn like I said is just a bit unsettling. This, like I said, this is a different level. He he just looks horrifying he he it's it's the things like that again the lack of speech it's the the hanging skin um he the way he moves it's mm. janky um yeah. you know like again a bit like the fawn um he <laughs> the fact he the way he comes to life is you know done in a very subtle way the fact that he the movement is purely at the start of his 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 very his hands because they're, they're very long, mm. aren't they? He's got very claw like hands, yeah. He's got these black... long black fingers, yeah. Yeah, and he, he, you know, they you just see the sudden movement, and like you said, he pops his, his eyeballs into his palms. And the, you know, so the way he moves is is horrifying. I think for me, that the, the most prominent thing of the whole scene with him isn't it doesn't involve him, it's the it's all the little children's shoes and, and clothes oh, in yeah. the pile is horrifying. That is. <laughs> it really is because because yeah. he you know he's a f well he's a baby eater isn't he, he yeah he, he, yeah he feeds on on defenseless children and you see the this artwork on on his on the walls where he's he's yeah he's he's got children basically begging for mercy at his at his feet and he's just devouring them it's it's absolutely horrifying <laughs> yeah and like on, on the subject of the shoes. The film is set in 1944 in Europe. Uh, you know, World War Two was going on. Um, and the shoes, I'm pretty much 100% certain, are a very direct reference to uh, the Holocaust. I presume uh, that as well, yeah. Well, no, because I've been to Auschwitz and there's just these rooms filled with people's shoes piled up exactly like that. They look just like that. And it's this incredibly sort of chilling thing to see in real life, obviously, and you know, again, the layers of symbolism in this film are, you know, perhaps a failure's heard of what's happening over in Germany and, you know, several other European countries at that point. <laughs> uh, and this is sort of, you know, there's several theories around the film of all the supernatural stuff was real or all the supernatural stuff was uh, in a failure's head. And if it's all in her head, that's, uh, 
that's probably just a subconscious saying, hey, remember that very scary thing you heard the adults talking about? <laughs> yeah. Also, talking of the symbolism, there there is theories that the reason he is called the pale man and he is to be a white male, i.e. that the 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 evil in the world is often caused by white males you know again mm. talking about the you know again it's a it's a yeah, far yeah. out theory it's not you know i'm not saying that that is no, no. technically the case but that is what so why some people think he's he's you know pale yeah. and white because yeah. that is, that is the root of all evil <laughs> <laughs> well hey it's very open to interpretation yeah absolutely i won't argue with anyone who believes that to be their interpretation of no, it no no exactly. today today's society i'm not going to argue that a White guys aren't doing the best job. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so uh, th- there's a there's a fairly simple rule here that the, that the fawn's given her, which is, hey, don't don't uh, don't eat or drink anything, and you'll be fine. Uh, which is a really common thread in these sort of trips to the underworld or the world of the dead stories. You know, you have um, is it is it Persephone, Hades' wife? Uh, yeah, Persephone, yes. Hades' wife is brought down to the underworld and as long as she didn't eat anything <laughs> as long as she didn't eat anything uh she would be fine and she couldn't resist having just you know a couple of seeds from a pomegranate because you get incredibly hungry and thirsty in these situations of course at the most inopportune time um and yeah ophelia decides you, you know what? it's been a while since i've had a nice grape uh, <laughs> so i'm gonna i'm gonna have i'm gonna have me a couple of these very juicy and delicious and whoever's working on set you made them look so good uh these these big purple grapes um and the the pale man very silently wakes up uh like you said matt sort of just beginning with just the hands sort of lifting themselves up and getting the eyes and honestly one of the scariest parts of this is he's almost completely silent like we as the audience we're getting a shot looking directly on at Ophelia, so we can see him walking up behind her but Ophelia's there it's grape time. She's having fun. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, and it doesn't really notice until the fairies literally uh, start causing a ruckus behind her by trying to fight, fend him off. Uh, <laughs> he is so intimidating. I just can't get over it. <laughs> this is yeah. incredible. It's, it's horrible when he, cause he then eats the fairies, doesn't he? He catches yeah, two, of them two of them and literally just eats them head first. It's, it's horrible. Oh. I really, you know, mm. it's one of those moments where you emotionally you think, oh, you know, because obviously the the fairies are a good, well, so far have been good characters in the movie, and you, you just think, oh, you know, those poor little fairies that he just he 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 is the pinnacle of monster, isn't he? And on oh, so yeah. many different levels. Yeah, he's the he's definitely the most obviously monstrous uh, thing. Uh, I won't I won't say in the film, but in the supernatural segment of the film, definitely. Um, there's oh. actually um, there's actually reference as well compare, comparing him to Captain Fidal in the other mm. side of the movie. You know, there's that scene, isn't there, in the where he's uh, Captain Fidal. He's sat on a big table with all yeah. the other superiors the laid out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where there, you know, there's more. You know, where there's people. You know, like you said, it's, it's 1944. There's people where at that time literally almost had to eat stone soup it was that you know they were that mm. short of food um that he's there they're, they're all having a lavish feast there there's people you know sucking up to him you know and and obviously there's that and it, there's a direct comparison that both of them are, are just the, 
you know the pinnacle of evil you know on both mm. sides you know both the fantasy and the real world side because obviously Captain Vidal is you know a monster of a man <laughs> in his actions as well so yeah yeah good good little uh, comparison yeah. there so uh, there's actually a, a fairly interesting point to me where with his design is actually I believe based on a Japanese creature Dave yes the Tenome so that's uh, uh, eyes in the hand I mean yeah. Is what it just yeah, fairly self-explanatory. <laughs> but um, yeah, the the images um, again from the Gazuhiaki Yagyo um, are like strikingly almost identical to the uh, what we get in um, Pan's Labyrinth mm. for the Pale Man. Yeah. Um, also termed the Temebozu. Uh, which is like the hand-eye um, priest yeah. uh, because he's bald with like a um, again a really Silent Hill looking <laughs> face. There's, yeah, there's it's mashed up and there's no real features on it. Uh, and then there's the eyes um, on his hands. And apparently, these guys like rip people apart or something. Um, Yokai of the week. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is a special episode you oh, guess yeah. you have one <laughs> um, I know oh, you guys bonus. are going to get greedy um, here uh, the story goes as follows once a man went on a trial of guts uh, or a test mm-hmm. of courage um, uh, to a graveyard at the Shichijo Gawara in Kyoto when a monster who appeared to be an old person around 80 years of age came after him and this monster had eyeballs on the palm of each hand the man fled to a nearby temple and after he made the monk there let him after the monk there concealed him in a a chest the monster chased after him whereupon there was a sound like that of a dog sucking a bone and after that it finally disappeared it is said that when the monk opened up the chest the man was found to have all the bones in his body removed uh, his body reduced to just skin. Jesus. So, yeah, that's uh, that's <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> wow. oh, um, and... That would be worse with the fairies if he just kind of drank them. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, oh. Wow. Japan, are you okay? <laughs> yeah, so that's definitely interesting to, to, to pick that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a super unique design especially in more western film <laughs> and it stands out so much um yeah <laughs> i really i have nothing more to say on this horrifying person <laughs> uh dave matt is there anything else we should know about our pale man uh yeah there was a, a comics that came on the um the dvd release of this and it kind of expounded upon um the pale man's lore saying that he was once a being of excess um, banished to the room that uh, Ophelia finds him in, and he's not able to eat the food um, on the table before him, yeah. which, which resulted him in being the emaciated figure we, um, she runs across. Uh, additionally, so she's there to retrieve something, and she she finds a, um, a like a sort of chest of drawers um, with locks on them, and the, and the key from her first trial uh, enables her to unlock one of the one of the little. Um, doors on the chest and she finds a um a dagger in it that, that looks like almost looks like the dagger from uh the golden child <laughs> <laughs> a little bit um 
but the the pale man locked that knife away because he believed it was the only thing that could hurt him but um, in the reality of his world that was the only thing keeping him uh, around so when Ophelia takes it and leaves apparently he disappears hmm. so that's kind of neat and I wish they had you know maybe shown that in the film but maybe it would have made the scene uh, more inscrutable rather than filling in any details yeah. yeah I mean yeah that's interesting um, I didn't see that comic so uh, I didn't know that uh, I was I was more scared of the fact that uh, I thought he just still existed but uh, I guess it's nice to know that he's gone <laughs> yeah he's he, he's one of those sort of images it's so hard to get him out of your mind <laughs> it's just one of those that, <laughs> that you know it's so horrific that as you know physically and the, his behavior and what you know about him that you know it's just, it's so what you know not what you're expecting at that point anyway i know yeah. there's a lot of a lot of nasty things in this film you know especially on the civil war side but especially with what vidal gets up to but you know like like i said earlier this is different level he he, he is just truly horrifying and i think it really does you know spin things on it, you know, you're just not expecting it at this point. And, I, and like I said, I think even though he he's not in it for very long, you know, he's probably mm. in it for probably five minutes, really, if yeah. that. Um, he has such a dramatic effect on the film at that point that you know, it's. I'm so glad he's in it, even though I ha- I don't like seeing pictures of him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he's uh he's not nice to look at. Uh, for 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 listeners, uh knowledge matt did put in our discord chat a photo of a tattoo of this man that someone has put on their arm um why and i do not know and it's, someone, and it's someone from the uk as well oh, i've seen where i've just seen where it's well i mean it's it's, it's, really, it's really high tattoo, quality but, but it's the pale man why like i said in the in the yeah. chat why why would you do that <laughs> well <I don't> know. <laughs> what is that implying that he likes children oh i hope not wow yeah um wow um so yeah these these are the uh the monsters and creatures of pan's labyrinth we have the beautiful and wonderful fairies we have the mysterious uh slightly creepy or sinister but possibly not too bad pan or fawn and then we have the pale man who yeah we've discussed that um (laughs) Uh, yeah. No, um, anything else you guys want to touch on, really? Uh, Dave. Uh, yeah. Let's um do a super brief um the, the yeah. ending of this. So uh, Ophelia, uh, basically more or less succeeds in her um, tasks, and the uh, the final task uh, the fawn sets her to is to retrieve her her brother. And um, basically offer him up as a sacrifice for her to enter uh, the underworld. Mm-hmm. Um, the fawn assures her that it just needs to be like a, a pinprick yeah. um, on the on the baby's hand, and just a drop of blood is enough. Um, but she refuses. She, um, she doesn't want to, in any sense of the word, um, sacrifice her brother um, in exchange for her own uh, immortality or well-being. Or, you yeah. know, escape from this reality that she's in. 
but uh, I guess that too um, is that that is the test, and uh, she she passes. She was not supposed to um, sacrifice someone else for her own yeah. well being, and she she ends up unfortunately being fatally wounded um, by her her stepfather, mm. who shoots her for. I don't know. There wasn't really well, a reason, I mean, but nothing he did. Nothing he did was was no. reasonable. He's a horrible human yeah. being. Um, but as she's as she's laying uh, on the ground, dying above the labyrinth, uh, her blood drips down uh, and acts as the the, the sacrifice of innocence um, enough to enable her, uh, I guess, at least spiritually, mm. uh, travel to the underworld uh, in the in the positive outlook of the ending, yeah <laughs> I guess, that which is uh quite open to interpretation but uh, even del toro himself so since he wrote it and says that she she made the mm. journey that's uh, good enough yeah, for me yeah it's a very touching ending i do really like it um it did the movie did that thing where you actually see this at the start though you see ophelia lying there and um again a lot of people take that as oh this is just sort of her brain dying is like reinterpreting the last couple of weeks as this fantastic adventure rather than you know hell under a fascist regime (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh matt do you have any sort of final thoughts on the film well the the, going off what you just said there the Mm. there is um a theory that it's all fantasy that literally everything you know going to start with that initial scene where you see it on the floor that everything you're about to see either the next two hours is literally all in her head it's all a fairy tale none of it has actually happened okay even though i i, I don't believe that theory but that's a, a, a quite a common theory that i've mm. read as well um yeah i think overall i think that the it's one of those films and I've, i said it earlier but i think it really benefits to watch it at least a couple of times because i think that you don't see obviously the layers that are there on the initial uh, watch through of it i think that the parallels between the civil war side and the fantasy side are fantastic you've got uh comparisons between obedience and disobedience because you know olivia has got to you know be is dealing with that side of things with vidal but then also with the fawn as well on the yeah. fantasy side um like we said like i said earlier the comparisons with vidal and and the pale man um the only thing I can't compare them to is the fairies, because um, <laughs> feels like I'm comparing everything Vidal to everyone. Um, but it, it's got a lot of Im- it's got a lot of impact on a lot of layers. Um, it's uh, yeah, I think it's one of those sort of fancy films like, that is iconic. And again, I know it's a word that gets used to, a bit too much, but it really is. It's that, like I said, we, it's got a couple of monsters slash creatures that yes they've got a varied amount of um screen time but they're all have a massive impact um the i said the the civil war side of things has a lot of impact for a lot of other reasons the you know what the rebels are having to deal with the you know fascist regime um yeah you know there's there's so much you know that could be a whole another episode as well uh yeah i i think it for anyone that hasn't watched it it's definitely worth a watch um like like i said at the start i just wish it had a bit more of the fantasy side um in regards to the ending when you when she goes into the underworld um i wish there was a little bit more to that 
you know, I know you, you know, I suppose I don't know what, I don't know what I was hoping for, because um, it ended as you would expect it to, where she sees her true mother and uh, mother and father, and she's back in where she should be. But I just, again, I wish they just fleshed it out a little bit more. Uh, but I think they probably wouldn't have had time for it. Mm, mm. Yeah, it's already such a long film. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I think it's a great film. I said this at the start, I absolutely love Pan's Labyrinth. I don't watch it as often as I should because it's really long and it's sort of an emotional slog <laughs> with all the <laughs> stuff going on. Um, yeah. But it is beautifully shot, beautifully acted, uh, some beautiful, beautiful practical effects. Seriously, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen Pan's Labyrinth, I implore you, please, go watch this. You will not regret it. Well, uh, you might regret it. You'll have to deal with... Yeah, now that we've spoiled yeah. it for you. You'll be, you'll be emotionally <laughs> scarred, but that you won't regret it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we only spoiled the supernatural stuff. We didn't spoil too much of the... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Regular stuff. Um, yeah. So, uh, with that, Matt, where can people find you on the internet? People can find me on that twitter.com that i hear people talking about um you can find me at ninja badger seven the number seven mm-hmm. uh, feel free to chat uh how about you dave you can find me on twitter at sentient underscore plus uh as always it will be in the notes really except for notes. one episode. never have guessed <laughs> <laughs> no never heard that before Oh dear. And you can find me on Twitter as well. I'm at night underscore twitten. That's night without a K. Uh, you can also find our podcast Twitter at mon underscore demonster. Uh, feel free to send us any critique, responses. Uh, we often tweet out what our next subject for recording will be, asking for responses. So please give us some of the chat. Oh, wait. My. Oh, listener feedback. Listener feedback. We do have listener response. feedback this time. <laughs> this is exciting. Yes. My, I'm so sorry. Let's I nearly those, forgot you. Let's dust. Let's dust the cob, cobwebs away. Uh, Dave, take yeah, it away. We almost, almost. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, we did get a response from um, my Sinclair. Uh, so at my underscore Sinclair. And okay. Um, she says, "I I thought about it when we asked about um, uh, what's your." favorite um del toro uh, creature and uh, she says and she thought about it and glanced through some more of his designs so she's taking a look at um, some of his uh, design books um there's a definite style he loves with the splayed open mouth and um eyes around the rims uh i'm going to go with two choices fawn yeah. uh which is from this film, and then the clock insect from Kronos. And so this is an insect embedded into a pocket watch that can grant eternal life um, at the cost of being... uh, You're stuck with being a vampire um, to uh, satiate the insect's bloodthirst. And she also likes the angel of death from Hellboy. definitely. Another Doug Jones and... So many eyes. eyes. Uh, very cool. Yeah. <laughs> the epitome of uh, Guillermo's uh, design aesthetic, she exactly. says. Awesome. So thank you, my thank you very for, much. Uh, yeah. Chiming in. I definitely want us to cover Hellboy. Oh, point. yeah. No, we'll we're be, going to at some point, be. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, it's part of Del Toro month. Yeah, yeah. we'll... Uh, <laughs> Well, maybe, well, maybe we'll take a look at the comics, yeah, that'd too, be cool. uh, because there's yeah. a significant cool. mythology behind that that the uh, the films aren't able to, to dig yeah. much into. Mm. Yep. 
All right. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so with that, dear listener, we hope you'll join us next time, and thank you for listening. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Your guy of the week.